Hey, welcome back, everybody. Of course, you know me. My name is Dr. Keith McNally. This is episode four of the Envision Speaker Series. I am here with Kevin Strauss and Mitch Gray, and we are going to talk about mental health, but in a very special way today. So I've invited these two gentlemen to join me in conversation because I created the Envision Speaker Series to change the conversation around mental health and what it means to be healthy, both psychologically and emotionally, and I will add spiritually and behaviorally as well. And whatever that encompasses, whatever space that involves you in is what we want to talk about. But I wanted to make sure that I was doing it right. And so I brought in two experts, 20 plus year experts in the scope of what it means to be healthy in all of that. So I've got Kevin and I've got Mitch. And so typically I would read off a bio for both of them, but I decided to do something different as well. I wanted them to introduce themselves and the value that they're gonna bring to this conversation. So let's go ahead and get started. Kevin, I wanna start with you. If you can kind of give us some insight into who you are and why you're here and the value that you're gonna add, I would like that. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to see you again, Mitch, as well. Um, my name is Kevin Strauss. I am the founder of Uchi, which is a social app, but we'll get into that maybe, maybe not later on. So just to try and answer your question directly, the value that I bring is I've been exploring, studying, researching human behavior for 22 years now. I've put more than 20,000 hours into trying to answer the question, why do we do what we do? Why do we behave the way we behave? And it's taking me down a very interesting path um, to the point where I'll just come out and say it is I don't even think humanity has a mental health problem. I think our real problem is emotional health. And those are two very different elements of our health and wellness. And then emotional intelligence is another element of our overall well-being. So I really distinguish between all of these. And I feel like once we understand and reach um, different definitions for emotional health, mental health that are more accurate to how we're actually living our lives on this planet, I think we can really move move our behaviors forward in a way where everybody is thriving, where everybody is happy and living their best life. Um, so that's really what I'm bringing is 22 years of, of digging into this. I love it. And I want to get into that. Maybe not all 22 years worth, <laughs> but at least a couple of minutes worth. Mitch, how are you doing today? And what brings you to my table? Uh, doing well. Thanks, uh, Kevin. Good to see you again. Um, Thanks, Keith, for having me on another iteration of our uh, colliding together in this universe. It's always fun. Um, yeah, let me, uh, I'm, I'm sure Kevin felt this way as well. It's like when you get asked to give a bio, it's like, well, here's a book of my life. Um, so to kind of uh, condense things, uh, I, I would say I started in, uh, I started chasing my curiosity of the spiritual um, when, really when I was a kid. Um, on, on your show many times, I've told the story of, you know, when I was 10 years old, I knew without a doubt all I wanted to do was, was be a pastor. Um, really what I was saying was, I see that there's more to this life than what we see, than what has skin on it. 
And I knew that at a very young age. And so then it really became this curiosity of, what what does the unseen world really look like and what role does it play um, in the seen world? And so that led me on a journey. You know, I started in ministry when I was 19 years old. Uh, so at 19, I'm counseling kids and their parents and whatever else that ministers and pastors do as a kid myself. Um, I'm actually a certified mental health groups-based facilitator. I had a nonprofit for quite a few years and uh, we had contracts with school districts and uh, juvenile detention and adult detention, uh, teen court. We had about 5,000 kids come through our mental health programs in about four years. Uh, I facilitated the vast majority of those groups. Plus, I've trained, gosh, over 100 mental health facilitators. Uh, I've coached well over 10,000 people across the world as a certified life coach and spiritual guide. And so much like Kevin, you know, his experience is a little bit all of our experiences are different, but um, Kevin and I first had a conversation, I guess about a month, month and a half ago, and we talked for like two hours. And, you know, what I like about, I think Kevin and I's dynamic is we do have different perspectives, but we really have the same passion. And the same passion is that people just find a place of health, a place of safety, and a place where you can feel some security. Now, I would argue that security is a bit uncontrollable, uh, but I would also propose teachings that, you know, all the way from Nelson Mandela to uh, Buddha to Jesus, all the great teachers taught the idea that positive attitude and internal well being is not circumstantial. Now, that's easier said than done. Circumstance can and should play a role, but we also have this innate ability spiritually and emotionally to rise above circumstance and find some capacity of safety, security, and health. I also say that as someone who has dealt with severe depression his whole life, uh, I've been clinically diagnosed with bipolar, PTSD, and severe depression disorder. Um, I actually recently over the summer spent 30 days in a full immersion mental health rehab uh, for my health and safety and security. And so I believe everything I just said. I also understand the reality of the darkness that so many of us are dealing with. And to, to, to what Kevin said, and I know what we talked about a few weeks ago before this idea of this interview, it really is about changing uh, the conversation. Uh, a change in conversation means we have it differently than we've had it before. Uh, and that's where I do love Kevin's idea about redefining and and re-entering something. And so, you know, hopefully I think both of us bring something to that nature uh, to the table from all of our experiences, both personal and uh, professional. Mitch, I appreciate all that. So I just gave you your segue. You're welcome. <laughs> all good. All good. And so I want to approach this conversation um, a little differently than I have in the previous episodes. And so this is going to be just a series of questions, and then we'll see how that goes. And so I have identified three questions. I have them written down right over here, and I'm just going to pose them, and both of you will answer them. So with that idea, let's go ahead and get started. New let's, introductions, new approach. <laughs> Let's start with the idea that we need to redefine some terms. 
both of you have indicated that we need to redefine what mental health is or basically what it means to be healthy. So let's go ahead and redefine that. First, let me ask the question, is that the right way to approach a change in the conversation? And secondly, if so, how are we going to redefine the words that we use in the conversation? I don't care who goes first. Uh, I'm happy to go because that's usually how I start most of these conversations is I think that one of the big reasons why we're struggling so much as a species is because we're operating from incorrect definitions. And, and this goes from the CDC to the AMA to the WHO and so on around the world. Um, and unless we can get on sort of the same page and reach sort of a consensus about how we're defining and understanding whatever it is we're talking about, unless we're on the same page, then we end up going in all different directions. So um, I'm gonna take this just a little bit larger because um, you're talking about health and well-being, right? You've mentioned that a couple of times. So I think about our well-being or our wellness, I'm just using those interchangeably, I think of them like the four tires on a car. There's physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. And I know there are a lot of different wellness wheels and models out there, but that's where I've landed. And I can fairly easily um, take any of the other components like social health or financial health or whatever, and I can easily put that under one of those four main tires on the car. My definition for physical health, I'll use the one that everyone else is using, that's fine. But I will just say that physical health is on a spectrum where zero would be you're dead, um, so nothing else matters. And then in the physical world, and 100% would be like 100% perfectly healthy, your mitochondria and everything are working at the best optimal level. So we're never really gonna reach 100%, maybe a baby you know, when they're born, but um, so that's sort of the spectrum. And for all areas of health, there's a spectrum. So it's where are you at any given moment? Because we're always, you know, on that scale. So my definitions for emotional, mental, and spiritual health are very different than the rest. But I hope that people will keep sort of an open mind and a clean slate and think, okay, let's just say, let's say these were the definitions. How would that work? How does that play out? How does that resonate with me? Okay, these are quick definitions. So for emotional health, I define that as a person's ability to give and receive love, connection, and belonging. It's not about all the different emotions that we have. It's really more about our feeling ability and giving and receiving love, connection, and belonging, okay? Mental health, so it's like our feeling ability, which happens in our midbrain, our amygdala, our midbrain. Our mental health, is more about our ability to focus, concentrate, think clearly, perform cognitive tasks, which most people do pretty well. It's not 100% across the entire human population, but generally speaking, you know, we go to school, we do our homework, we go to work, we do our job, we pay our bills, we pick up our groceries, we make our food, we clean ourselves. Generally speaking, we can operate day to day, okay? So that's our cognitive ability. It's like our frontal lobe. It's our decision-making and reasoning abilities. And then I'll say spiritual health 
has, for me, has nothing to do with God or religion. For me, spiritual health is our ability to know and pursue our purpose in life. So what nurtures you at your core, your essence, your soul, the spirit of you, Keith, or you, Mitch, or me, Kevin? What nurtures me at my core? What gets me out of bed each day? And you can have many different purposes. It's not just like one person, one purpose, and that's it. And that, if you can't figure it out, you're nothing. It's not like that at all. You can have many different purposes. You can have big ones and little ones. You can have long-term and short-term purposes. It's what's getting you out of the bed day, out of the bed day to day, what's motivating you on a regular basis. And all the different tires, they all interrelate, right? So emotional affects mental, mental, spiritual, spiritual affects physical, physical affects emotional, emotional back to physical. So they all go back and forth. But just like the tires on a car, you cannot just inflate one tire and think that car is going to run well. And that's pretty much what we do with physical health. Just keep inflating the physical health tire, exercise more, eat better food, which by the way, most people think they're eating, who think they're eating right, aren't eating right. But anyway, you can't just inflate one tire and think that car is going to run well. And if just one tire goes flat, that car doesn't run well. And I think that's what's happening with our emotional health. Kevin, I appreciate that. Mitch? Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> absolutely. Mitch? Do we need to define words differently in the conversation? Um, I, I would say yes and no. Um, it, here's why. First of all, I 100% uh, am walking side by side with Kevin in the idea that definitions do matter. Um, and the idea, you know, we, and Kevin and I have on other conversations, we can get into the whole medical pharmaceutical health industry, and that's a whole other conversation that wouldn't change the system in a way. It's just a fun conversation. Are there gaps? Are there pieces to the puzzle that we're just completely missing because of misdefinitions, capitalism, politics, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, there are. Um, I'm not going to redefine because, first of all, I really support Kevin's definitions, and I think we're going to have a better conversation if we leave our definitions for this conversation like this. The reason I say yes and no is redefining and having consistency on definitions that are much more relatable do make the work much more feasible, uh, more accessible, greater possibility. The reason I say no is, I'll give you an exact example. This morning, I had a meeting uh, with a venture capitalist team, and they do, they're in the deep tech space industry. So they have this idea that they call a studio. So if I just take the word studio and I ask 10 different people, what's the definition of, definition of studio? How many definitions am I going to get? I would say at least four. Some people may say a studio is a small apartment. Uh, if you happen to be a musician or artist, you're going to say a studio is where you go to record or work. If you happen to be a Zen Buddhist monk, you're going to, going to say that a studio might be where I go meditate. If you're in the deep tech space industry, you're going to say that a studio is where idealists come together and investors come together and they try and create new products to take to market to see if they're going to push forward with them or not. What's my point to that? My point is, does the definition matter? It depends on who you're talking to. 
because language is simply wrapping paper. That's all it is. Language is a form of communication to express the ideas that I would like to get across. So definitions are important so that we have a level playing field and we're starting from the same defining point. But they're also not important because when we're talking about health, what really matters is the definition of the party going through the health crisis. And so when we think about it from that perspective, it's like at the end of the day, my definition really doesn't matter if I'm helping you get through a really dark time. The person's definition that matters is the person going through the really dark time. And so we have to almost be pliable. The conversation needs to push forward so we have a defining point that makes more sense and closes the gaps. Pliability has to come into play because if you're going through a crisis moment, it doesn't matter what I think about emotional mental health. What matters is the reality that you are facing at that given moment in time. And I think that's where, to Kevin's point, we can miss the boat. When the CDC or the health industry or the pharmaceutical industry says A, B, C, and D make up depression. Okay, that's great, but what if I don't have A, B, C, and D, but I'm still incredibly depressed? And so that's kind of where I'm going with it's a yes and a no question. We need more common ground that makes more sense and is more accessible, but we also need more pliability so that when someone's going through an unexplainable moment in time, we have the humanity to show up for what they need in that singular moment in time. Just to piggyback on the idea of what I think you're saying, Mitch, you and I had a re conversation recently and I was kind of explaining to you some of the troubles I was going through uh, rather recently. And you said, and I'm not going to, I'm going to paraphrase because I'm not going to remember uh, exactly. You were, you were a respecter of my space or something to that effect. You, you were respecting me in uh, my words, my emotions, uh, my thoughts. Is that kind of what you're, you're saying now? And can you add some light to that? And then I want to throw that back into Kevin. Maybe he can add some, something to that. Yeah, let's go back to Kevin's really great analogy, by the way. And that this is the third or fourth time I've heard him share this. His car and analogy? Is, yeah, the car analogy, okay? Because it, almost everyone drives a car. Everyone at least knows what a car is. If you have a blowout, I just drove 250 miles this morning to make this interview that's for thousands of miles apart, right? So on the side of the road, I saw multiple people with tires that were blown out. So they're going to have to put their temporary spare tire onto that vehicle most likely. Can they drive that temporary spare small tire for a long distance? The answer is no, they shouldn't because the answer is they're going to try their darndest. They're going to try, but it becomes really unsafe. What's the sustainable solution? The sustainable solution is that they drive that temporary tire to the nearest tire shop to get a healthier tire put on so that the balance of everything is in play. But that temporary tire is really, really important when used properly. It provides a safe space of continuance for a single moment in time so that you can then get back to the attainable, uh, sustainable property of health. So for you, what I was doing was creating a safe space in that moment. 
I validate your thoughts. I validate your emotions. I have no right or reason to add anything to them other than energy and presence. And that really, when we're talking about changing the conversation around mental health, for me, the core of that is learning to use language through presence rather through words. I know for me and my struggle with mental health and my darkest of moments that have been life or death moments, the best thing someone could do for me was say, I validate your emotion and I'm here, period. I don't need an explanation. I don't need a solution. I don't need prayer. I don't need any other religious remedy. What I need is someone in that moment in time to say, I validate you and I'm here. To Kevin's analogy, they're serving in that gap when maybe I can't think straight, all the chemicals in my brain are messed up, or my heart just isn't functioning properly, it's my spiritual heart, my, my way of being, and I can't see what I need to see. So in that moment, you're acting as a temporary uh, safe space for me to get to where I need to go for sustainability. Sometimes that's done through friend peer groups. Sometimes that's done through medication. Sometimes that's done through therapy. I would argue it's done through all the things above. By the way, Kevin, I'm going to reiterate, it's also done through eating a good diet, exercising. Like to Kevin's point, that's a great analogy. But guess what? Sometimes the tire blows out. And sometimes we need a spare put on. And I think that's changing the conversation is I'm not here to fix you. I'm not here to pump your tire with fix a flat. What I'm here to do is to just simply be a temporary safe space so that you can drive safely to the best next destination. And that's kind of where I go back to definitions. In that moment in time, they don't matter as much. But for sustainability, they matter greatly because if I can define things for my own self, I can then better show up for others in their moment uh, in time. And so that's really, really critical. So yes, the idea I was giving you was a safe space for a moment in time so that you can build your confidence, drive to the new tire store and be able to get a new tire put. And sometimes it means I put the tire on for you. Sometimes it means I pay for the tire for you. That's okay. But what we have to get away from, and I think Kevin between the lines is saying this, we have to get away from temporary band-aids and move more towards sustainability. And that's the real critical piece of achieving this kind of idea of health. Kevin, any last thoughts before I go to the next question? Uh, well, there's a lot to uh, address in what Mitch was sharing there. Um, um, just a couple little items. I, I mean, I wasn't taking notes, so we'll just do that on the fly. Um, you know, the, the idea of the, the blowout, absolutely. And if, and if we're not maintaining on a regular basis, this is that sustainability, I think, that you're talking about, Mitch. If we're not maintaining proper air pressure in the tires, if we're not regularly eating well and exercising and sleeping, if we're not regularly practicing, maybe it's doing Sudoku and crossword puzzles or, you know, calculus or something to keep the mind working. Um, but I think what it sounds like to me, Mitch, what you provided Keith in this safe place was the real emotional safety. You were there to listen, to hear him, to understand him. And, and that safety, that's an emotional safety. It's not a mental safety. I'm back, I'm back to my definitions, because to me, what you shared 
falls right into my into these definitions um where we all humans have a basic need to feel heard and understood because that lets us know we matter and when we matter that lets us know we have value and in our brain value translates to love and love is that basic human need so what keith needed it sounds like in that in that time he really needed to feel love which means his emotional health was probably his emotional health tire was probably really low or flat and mitch you were there to help inflate his tire a, a fair amount enough where he could drive on it again so, you know, feeling heard and feeling understood is just so critical because, again, then we know that we matter and we have value and value equals love. And unfortunately, I'm going to go on a little tangent. Unfortunately, what we're doing in society, what we've been doing, you know, for centuries is we're defining the value of a person pretty much, I'm generalizing, I generalize a lot, but pretty much by how much power, money, or status you have. We're not valuing each other for the unique energy that every single human being is in the universe. That's our real value. We are all unique energy, whatever, you know, well, we're all energy. I mean, that's just physics right there. So we're just energy slowed down to be matter. But when we go after power, money, and status, and we're not nurturing love, connection, and belonging, and really listening and hearing and understanding each other, each other's perspectives, then we really start to disconnect. And we don't feel like we're a part of this world. We don't feel like we belong. And boy, does that hurt. It hurts so much. I go to the heart, but it's like our amygdala, you know, in our brain. And it doesn't mean your brain chemistry is, it doesn't mean your brain is broken because not feeling loved is not a broken brain. It's not a mental illness. Not feeling like you belong or feeling lonely and isolated is not a mental illness. It's a feeling. It's not a broken brain. So I'll just leave it at that for now. Well, Kevin, Mitch, I do appreciate that. I do want to switch gears a little bit. Now we've we've explored the words and how powerful they are and the appropriateness of when to use them and how we define things both for the immediate need and for sustainable need. I want to switch the conversation to, if we're changing the conversation, we also need to do things differently. And I want to focus on the doing part. What do we need to do differently to have better conversations around what it means to be healthy? And doing could be encompassing anything, but I'm really focused on the actionable items that really creates the world of health and a safe space to exercise that health. Kevin, you went first last time. I'm going to let Mitch go first this time, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? It's like, we want to do things differently, but then to your question, it's the, the follow-up question always is, okay, how? Like it's, it's a great ideology, but it's like, okay, what does that look like? Uh, In a very applicable actually, and practical sense, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what, what does this really look like? And, you know, for me, uh, when you ask that question, I, I tend to, if you would have asked me that question eight months ago, I think my gut response would have been not, not different, but my, uh, 
you know, we have this internal compass that when people say things or we see things, it kind of jumps. Uh, I think my internal jumping man would have jumped differently than it did today, eight months ago versus versus now. So today, when you ask that question, I tend to go very personal because you know my my, my experience with uh, mental health disorders, emotional health uh, challenges. I've really tapped into those the last year or two in a way that I've never tapped into them before, uh, mostly because I was in crisis mode, uh, which, by the way, to anyone watching or listening this, I want to, again, reiterate with exclamation points uh, what Kevin said earlier, and that is the maintenance of the tires on the car. Uh, please do your best to maintain as best you can. I am a firm believer that everyone should have a life coach, everyone should have a therapist, everyone should be working out at the gym, and everyone should be eating well. I also understand those can get really expensive, but there are alternatives out there that you can use. So for me, it gets really personal because there is this idea of the conversation I have going on internally, and I really didn't share my struggle uh, very much at all until real recently even with my family. I hit all of my battles, uh, even the physical manifestations and the health issues physically I was fighting. Uh, I hit all of that as best I could from everyone around me. Some of these have been going on for 20 years. What a part of the reason we hide those battles is number one, it's very embarrassing. Uh, it's very embarrassing to tell someone, and I want to relate this to something Kevin said, because I'm really hoping he digs deeper into this. Hint, hint, Kevin. It's really embarrassing to tell someone that I struggle with suicide ideation, uh, AKA thinking about suicide constantly and often. It's really embarrassing to tell someone that it took every ounce of my energy to get out of bed this morning. Those, I believe, are directly connected to our uh, enamorization of status and civilization. Um, and for me, that became an experience. So in 2005, when I was actually working my favorite job I've ever had in ministry, I was pastoring a small church. It was growing and thriving. Uh, that was the first time I was diagnosed with severe depression. Um, and my therapist said, Mitch, you need to take a break. Like, you just have to. You're completely burned out. I, I went to the church, asked for a break. They said yes. Three days later, they turned around and fired me. The problem we have in those moments is, again, to Kevin's point, that was an emotional problem that then became deeply connected to the failure and mistrust of others that then begins to chemically change and imbalance, we know that we can rewire neurons and create neural pathways. So what happens is the problem is emotional in the beginning, but it does become mental because we start stamping all of this stuff with everything that's taking place. And so for me, that became very embarrassing. In fact, Keith, to be honest with you, one of the first times I ever told that exact story was on your show about two years ago. In fact, I think I shared it in my last book. I had never really shared that before because that was incredibly, why was that embarrassing, Mitch? Because it hurt my pride. It was a failed dream and I lost my status. Somewhere. 
And so when we begin thinking about that, it's like, okay, how are we really going to change the conversation? It begins with step one, cutting the illusions. We have to, at some point, begin eradicating the illusions that status matters, that in the end, money matters, and that all of this high-pressure system that we've created culturally to have so many followers, to have so many likes, to have so many people streaming our videos, that that really matters. Because at the end of the day, at, at the end of life, it doesn't. None of that matters. That's more difficult than we think because then it does become a mental game, a thought pattern game, an emotional game of what have I really validated myself with when it comes to the emptiness of the approval of others. So when we're talking mental health, the first time I went to my kids, they were, they were two of them were adults. One of them was a senior in high school and I went to them and told them for the first time how severely I deal with depression for the first time. And that was an incredibly excruciating moment. Why? Because as a status symbol of a dad, I don't want my kids to see their dad as weak. Did my kids react that way? No. <laughs> but that's the figment that I make up in my mind, and we all do it, that we've tied to these labels, status symbols, and idealisms. And so for me, the first step is, to begin creating communities and conversations that validate, that facilitate, and that affirm. We're validating the emotion of the moment. We're facilitating a potential new idea and thought. And we're affirming that whatever is happening in this moment is okay, but is also temporary. And when we can do those three things, and we can do it day after day, over and over for ourselves first and then for others, we then begin creating this cohesive accepting culture that is about love, security, safety, and growth. But until we cut the illusions, it's really a battle of fighting ghosts. We can never hit what we think we're aiming for because it's all just empty and void of you know, going back to that spiritual element, I love Kevin's definition, because when we talk about the illusions, we're totally removing the spiritual element, because there is no spiritual element or emotional element in the illusion that we're seeing. We attach to those. And so at some point, we have to begin eradicating those. Mitch, thank you. Kevin? Wow, thanks for that, Mitch. Um, I'm going to go in a little bit different direction, but um, I just want to say on the on the topic of validation, I could not agree more with what Mitch is saying. I mean, I'll probably be ending the show whenever you ask a follow up. I think you're going to um, about validation, because when we are validated, when our emotions are acknowledged and validated, even more important, validated, then we feel heard. We feel like we matter. We feel valued, which translates to love. So. Um, and then that nurtures us emotionally, that nurtures our emotional health, um, which more often than not is what's driving our behavior, which is where this whole topic and changing how we talk about it is, is coming from, I think. Um, so let's see if I can wrap all this kind of where I'm coming from. So the question is, what do we do about, about this, right? What do That's, we do differently? Yeah. What do we do differently? Okay. So, um, so a couple of things come to mind. For one, I think in terms of our overall health and well-being, um, 
I see this as every human being has the same basic needs. And I think we need to start there and we're not doing it. And those basic needs, you know, this is for every human, actually every mammal on the planet, but every human being. I know we have talk about DNA-based drugs and genetic this and, you know, and a, and a special education plan for this student and that. But when it comes to our basic human needs, every single human on the planet needs air. Without air, nothing else in your universe matters, right? I mean, yeah, because you ain't breathing, yeah. Right? And you are in a world of hurt. Someone cuts off your airway, nothing matters. It is incredibly uncomfortable. You are in pain now. It's uncomfortable pain. And you need air. That's it. Not that I don't care about my checkbook or my Netflix account. I need air and nothing else matters. The same is true with water. You can go a little longer without water. We all need food. Now, granted, you know, you might be gluten-free and I might be lactose intolerant, but we all need food, right? We all need sleep. You go 24 hours without sleep and you're hallucinating. You know, you like, you don't know what's, you can't think straight without that physical need of sleep and everything else that happens when you sleep. And we need safety and security. And here I'm talking about our physical safety and security, you know, that you can, that you're not in fear of going out of your cave and being attacked by a saber-toothed tiger or walking down your street and not being shot by a stray bullet. And that's a problem in some areas of the US, certainly in areas of the world, it is a problem. But for the most part, for the most part, our ability to survive, to physically exist with these five basic needs is pretty well met. Take that with a grain of salt, because only 20% of the world's population has enough food and clean water in a given day. But it's that 20% of the population that's driving like most of what's going on in the world, you know, with our behaviors again. So those are the five physical needs. And if you can nurture those, the better you can nurture those, you know, how many people are sleep deprived, right? Get that eight hours of sleep, nine. I, I need like nine to 10 hours of sleep, you know, and that's when I'm not really exercising very much. I need a lot of sleep. So Nurture those five and then nurture that emotional need of love, connection, and belonging. I'm just going to say love, but love, connection, belonging. And again, if just one of those basic needs is not met, it causes pain. And a human being will do anything to ease their pain. And in the absence of that, of that need for love and connection, that's when we turn to behaviors to try and ease our pain. You know, because our brain only knows two kinds of pain, physical and emotional. In 22 years, I've never been able to identify mental pain. It's emotional and there's a difference. Okay. So we need, so this is part of changing the conversation or talking about it differently is that our behaviors are not because I'm crazy. It's not because, oh, I just want to have a good time and get high. That's not where our behaviors are really coming from. This is my opinion, you know, based on the work that I've done. But we are trying to compensate for our pain. Just like cut off the airway, we'll do anything to get air. And if we're not getting love, we'll do anything. I will scream and yell as a little baby. I will, I will do more, more sports and I will be a better athlete to be valued and increase my status right? I want to be strong and powerful and good looking 
to increase my status and feel valued. If I'm not strong, if I cry, crying is a weakness. Anything emotion is considered a weakness. And if that, that weakness translates to less value and less value means less love, now that basic need is not being met once again. And we do anything. We try and numb our pain with drugs and alcohol. We try and soothe our pain with food. We try and uh, exercise away our pain. I'm a 22-year Ironman triathlete. Let me tell you, you can't exercise your emotional pain away. It doesn't work. I've tried. You know, it, it, it doesn't work. And we can see it with the athletes like Tiger Woods, Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, right? Simone Biles, um, Naomi Osaka. You know, these are professional athletes who, when they weren't feeling that emo that love, like if they if they didn't perform, they wouldn't be valued anymore. Because all they've ever known is the better I perform, the more valuable I am, the more loved I am. And that's the conversation. That's the change that I'm trying to create. That's what I want this conversation to help people understand that we're not crazy. It's not because we have bad brain chemistry that we do these behaviors and get depressed and anxious and so on. Our brain chemistry is changing because of the environment that we're existing in. And the environment that we're existing in is emotionally painful. And we need to change this environment. When we raise our kids in environments of constant shame, judgment, degradation, or emotional neglect, those are little T traumas, right? Big T traumas, we don't want anybody to have. You know, those are like, you know, rape and, and being beaten and the alcoholic father and divorce. Those are aces. Those are big T traumas. But what we're missing is the death by a thousand cut little T trauma where we're raised, like I was raised in a home of constant judgment and criticism. No matter what I did, it was never good enough. I got a 93 on a test. Oh, why didn't you get a hundred? If you would have done what we said, this is my parents talking. If you would have done what we said, you would have gotten a hundred. Meaning my parents are better than me. They're more valuable because they would have gotten a hundred. I am less valuable. Now I don't feel loved. Now, I know my parents love me, but just saying I love you at the end of the day does not undo a whole day's worth of judgment or emotional neglect. That's what I also grew up with emotional neglect, where if I was crying, like when I was a little boy, I, I, I lost my winter hat. I was like nine years old and I lost my winter hat and I was so upset. I don't know why I was so upset, but I was really upset and I was crying. Right. I was like nine and I was like crying over this winter hat. You know, it was this little red and blue red band with this little elephant emblem with the pom pom. I'm good, red man. Pom -pom. I appreciate it. Yeah. Right. And I was so upset and I was crying. And my mom's like, Why are you crying? It's not a big deal. Thank you for minimizing my pain. It's not a big deal. Stop crying. And I kept crying. She's like, You know what? I can't take, I don't want to hear you cry. If you want to cry, just go up in your room and cry because I don't want to hear it. We're taught not to emote, we're taught that our feelings are bad. They're a weakness. I mean, geez, in Star Trek, an entire race of people was created about not having emotions. And that was like the higher level species, right? Vulcans, right? I mean, you're probably a techie guy, right? Vulcans are like a higher level species, a more valuable species, because they can control all their emotions. Oh, but by the way, in the last five to 10 years, the neuroscience has taught us 
that 95% of our actions and behaviors are subconsciously driven. Only 5% of our actions and behaviors are consciously, conscious, conscious reasoning and decision-making. That's our frontal lobe. So it's our subconscious. It's what's happening. And that's where our emotions are stored in our subconscious. So if we think that our conscious brain and our emotional intelligence and consciously controlling every action behavior, if we think our 5% brain is going to constantly outweigh our 95% subconscious programming, like what Mitch was saying, these, these routines that are these false beliefs, or I forget the word that you said, Keith, uh, sorry, Mitch, um, what, illusions, the illusions, the illusions yeah. right? These false beliefs, these myths that we believe are true about ourselves that, you know, our 95% brain is almost always going to outshine our, not our 5% conscious brain. So we need to understand that how we are surviving in our environment is really what's driving our behavior. So what's happening in our environment? And there's a great book um, by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah, Winf Oprah Winfrey called What Happened to You? right? Not what's wrong with you and why do you do these crazy, stupid behaviors? Because no one in their right mind would go shoot up a school. No one in their right mind would kill themselves. You must be crazy. You must have bad brain chemistry. But if we turn it around and say, what happened to you? What pain are you trying to compensate for? What And that, that pain, again, it's physical or emotional. So it's what emotional pain are you trying to compensate for through your behavior? And if we start asking that question, things look very differently, very differently. I mean, I forget the numbers exactly, but um, for people in prison, it's like 75% it's like of people in prison have four or more ACEs. Those are the adverse childhood experiences. Those are the big traumas, four or more. So their behavior, their unlawful behavior, they're more than likely just trying to compensate for their pain of a horrific environment that they were just trying to survive. We're all just trying to survive. And when we create these environments, and I'm going to blame parents more than anything. Now, I acknowledge that I believe, I'm just going to say, I believe all parents unconditionally love their children, but that's not the message that the children are getting. And like I was saying before, just an I love you at the end of the day when you're putting a kid to bed does not undo an entire day's worth of shame and judgment and degradation. I literally listened to parents. I was in a grocery store, like right around time of COVID, listening to a mother berate her son, her seven-year-old son in front of me. And this is this is um, a black mom and son in front of a white man. She's saying to her little boy, boy, you better get some muscles on you if you can't put that case of water bottles in the cart. She was berating him in front of me, a white man. You know, we were like six feet away and he looked at me and we made eye contact and he felt less than. He felt not loved, not valued. And that's, that's the kind of stuff that gets imprinted. Those are the like illusions that get imprinted in our brain. And, you know, that, that can just completely change your path. If you start believing that, and it doesn't take too many instances, like in school, too many times of, hey, you're stupid, you got another C or D or an F on a test, you're never going to amount to anything. 
teachers talk that way to students. I know not every teacher does, but I think it's the norm rather than the exception. So if we keep engaging with our kids and, and even you know, our employees at work with this constant shame and judgment, and I think um, Mitch was talking about judgment, feeling embarrassed to share the challenges that he's had with his kids, that status, that judgment, if I'm judged as less than, then I won't be loved. And that goes right back to a basic need. And I'm going to do whatever I can to try and meet that need. Kevin, I appreciate that. We went a long way. We're almost at a 50 minute mark because we started a bit past four o'clock. But I do want to add my third question because one, I promised I'd ask three. So I'm going to ask that you simplify or shorten what may have been a preconceived longer answer. But here's the question. Going back to the word trauma, Kevin, you edit the trauma from a big T and a little T perspective. I have been having conversations with people for the past two, maybe three years since COVID and the quarantine. I started the Question Guy podcast from those conversations and those conversations were about personal transformations. I've added Coach's Corner as a means for people to talk about what they do professionally, pridefully. And I want them to be proud of what they do because a lot of what people have done in terms of personal transformation has ended up being a way that they can monetize their life. They've actually created jobs and entrepreneurial efforts and whatever from their, their transformation. But what I'm getting to is that whether it happened before during or because of quarantine and COVID, people face a lot of trauma. And because of that incident, whatever it was, they made intentional and very specific changes in their life. How can my conversations on the Envision Speaker Series tap into the idea that those intentional changes are what need to happen if we're going to be healthy as individuals, as families, as communities, as a global society? What do we need to do now? And that's a big question, so I'm not asking for I'm not asking for a dissertation, but what can, what can we do now to make specific intentional changes in our lives to be healthy? I was almost gonna say feel better, but I want us to be healthy. I don't care who goes first. Go ahead, I just spoke, but... Um... So just real quick, on the topic of COVID-19 and pandemic and quarantine, all of the problems that we had during quarantine and that came because of that, they were all there long before, centuries, millennia, and I won't give my dissertation on this, but these problems that humanity has been facing, has been faced, we've been facing these same problems since the beginning of Homo sapiens. The quarantine and all that isolation 
just amplified or exaggerated or brought out all these problems more. And I would venture to say it brought them out more because we didn't have our typical means for compensating for our pain. We used to go to the bar for happy hour a couple of days a week after work. Now we can't do that, right? We used to exercise like crazy to try and ease our pain and feel valued and so on at the gym, but we can't do that anymore, right? We used to go to school. Now I'm going to say, we used to go to school and socialize with kids with each other, right? With the, with our fellow students and coworkers at work, but with our fellow students. And now we can't do that. Oh, kids can't socialize. But you want to know what? If parents knew how to really connect with their kids, that wouldn't matter. But parents don't know how to connect with their kids. So when it comes to this intentionality, I'm going to go back. To, so now I'll just reiterate what I said before. And I'm going to piggyback a little bit on what Mitch was saying. Where I've landed is again, your physical needs, you know, food, water, sleep, you know, air, right, and safety, but we need to interact with each other, we need to be intentional about acknowledging and validating each other's feelings and emotions, we need to, and this is on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis, right, this is what we do all the time, we need to be acknowledging and validating emotions and feelings, we need to try to listen to each other in order to understand that person's perspective. And the last thing I'll say is we need to engage with each other and stop any and all shaming, judgment, degradation, and emotional neglect. And if we do that and interact with each other in those ways, it will nurture us, we'll feel heard and valued, heard and understood and valued. So that means we'll feel loved and then our behaviors will naturally improve because we no longer will choose behaviors to try and compensate for our emotional pain. Thank you, Captain. Mitch, final thoughts? Um, I, I think I want to give, first of all, I, I, you alluded to a little bit of a question that maybe I just heard. Um, so I'm going to say this. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, to give people a platform to have these conversations because it truly does start uh, with conversations. And, and you know, I, I've been a part of your journey since before you started any of these shows. And one of the first things you said to me was, I just want to have conversations with people. Um, and that's exactly where it begins. Conversation with self is also thrown into there. And I think we often... We often uh, devalue, devalue the conversation with self, but the person you talk to most is yourself. You talk to yourself long more than you talk to anybody else. Uh, so first of all, thank you. Uh, to, to the question I think you a little bit alluded to, uh, what can you know this speaker series do? It can continue showing up until you feel like the time has run its course, and it will, and that's okay. Uh, but to continue to show up, you know, it's similar to what Kevin said about our basic needs. If we don't show up, nothing changes. Like, that's one thing we know for sure. If we don't show up, either by choice or by the universe saying it's time to move on to whatever's next, nothing can change. And so showing up, in my opinion, is the single most valuable thing that we can action we can take. So continue showing up. I want to give the viewers and listeners 
something that I think it's really helped me. It's going to be incredibly practical. They can put it into practice today. It really dovetails well off of all of the uh, knowledge and, and viewpoints that Kevin has shared. Uh, it's really empowering to set yourself up with what I call daily anchors. Daily anchors or habits. I just don't care for the word habit because it's old to me. I like the word anchor. Um, although I did learn when I was in uh, at the Healing Center that the word anchor uh, for the people that are actually boat people, I'm obviously not. Uh, that's the wrong word. Like an anchor holds you still. And I'm like, yeah, but it keeps, so anyway, that was the whole thing that I was like, oh, maybe that's not the best analogy, but I'm going to keep using it because I have a better one. So your daily anchors, um, what could those be? I have five daily anchors. Number one, get out of bed. Like, because for those of us that do deal with uh, mental health, emotional health challenges, but for anyone, even if you're burned out, if it's a bad day, whatever, now. Don't discount rest. I'm with Kevin. I'm a 10-hour sleep guy, so I'm learning to rest more effectively. But at some point, you can't just lay in the mud. Uh, so years ago, when I first began dealing with the deep, deep, dark depression, like not get out of bed depression, I made the anchor. I get out of bed every day. Now, I can choose to go back, but I get out of bed every day. Uh, number two, I read every day. Uh, I have some sort of physical activity every day to read. Uh, number four, I try and serve someone, uh, really do something of service for some other human uh, every day. Um, and then my fifth one is meditate. There's different forms of meditation, uh, but that's kind of a centering idea. And so really those daily anchors, they in a way kind of manifest what Kevin's talking about, because what you're doing is you're taking back any negative patterns that you've adopted from others, uh, namely families and communities from when you were young, you're taking those back and you're creating your own habits and belief systems and opportunities emotionally. But the other thing you're doing is you're saying, I'm just going to show up for myself every single day, uh, even if it's just getting a cup of, cup of coffee, even if it's just getting out of bed, I'm going to show up. What we do know, the emotional capacity tells us. There's an ancient proverb that says, where there is no vision, the people die. I like to say, when people lose hope, they lose a reason for living. Kevin used the word purpose. I view those as interchangeable. What the daily anchors give you is a small sense of purpose. That when you can't see further than the tree in front of you, you can at least begin to show gratitude toward the tree in front of you. That lifts your awareness, it lifts your sensitivity, and it raises that emotional health that Kevin is talking about in a way that allows you to show up differently. And those need to be every day. If you miss a day, have self-compassion, have self-grace, but do your best to do those every day. That creates an awareness that's much greater uh, than just sitting in the mud, worrying about how you're gonna change the spare tire, et cetera, et cetera. And what those do is those anchors lead you to maintenance and maintenance leads you to opportunity and opportunity leads you to purpose. And that's a really beautiful thing in moving forward. Kevin Strauss, Mitch Gray, thank you, one, for your time, two, your wisdom, and three, this conversation. And so for those who are watching and of course listening, this has been episode four of the Envision Speaker Series.
and I'll see you next time. Take care.